This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and, and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to, to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on, on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups to where really history was made. The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. All right. Well, let, let's, let's hop in now to our, uh, resume our study. Last night, I gave you an overview of the martyrs under Bloody Mary, who they were, where they were martyred, who she was, why they were martyred, how they were martyred, etc. And we talked about John Rogers, who really is my favorite of the Marian martyrs. And I, I showed you my preaching Bible last night, and I, I just always carry a picture of John Rogers with me. Uh, I just love that man. Well, I've got some more friends that, I, that I, I've invited to lunch today uh, that, I, that I want to tell you about because these men rock the world as well. And we need to know about them. We're going to see them in heaven, but we need to know about them now so that their influence over these some 500 years can, can mold us and shape us into the men and women that, that we must become. So let's talk about Hugh Latimer. I want to talk about Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer was martyred, burned at the stake in the very same year that John, uh, John Rogers was martyred. And what is so memorable about Hugh Latimer is two things. I'll tell you this by way of introduction before we walk through his life. Number one, he was the greatest preacher in England. Uh, he was the John MacArthur of England, okay? He, he, he was known as the Apostle of England. Uh, he was a powerhouse of a preacher during the English Reformation. Uh, John, John Rogers was the Bible translator. Thomas Cranmer was the organizer and architect. And Nicholas Ridley was the theologian of the English Reformation, but the man we're going to look at right now, he was the preacher. He he was a powder keg in the pulpit. The second thing that really stands out about uh, Hugh Latimer is that he was burned at the stake back-to-back with Nicholas Ridley, and he he is famously remembered for being burned at the stake at Oxford, and, and I've, I've gone there, and, and, and the memorial is in the middle of a busy intersection, and so you have to walk through traffic that's just whizzing in, in all these different directions and literally stand in the middle of this intersection with buses and cars uh, uh, whizzing by to see the place where they drove the stake in the ground and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned to death at the same time, back to back. And it would be uh, the next year that Thomas Cranmer would be burned at the stake in exactly the same place at Oxford. So, let's walk through the life of Hugh Latimer, and I I want you to know this man. Uh, it, It really begins with he was a Cambridge graduate. Um, he was born in 1485 uh, in uh, Leicestershire, and he went to Cambridge. He went to Clare Hall in Cambridge, 
and received uh, an incredible, what we would call today, secular humanistic education. Uh, he studied Aristotle and the secular philosophers of the day, and that really shaped his mind uh, in a very uh, worldly way. Uh, he was a fellow, a teaching fellow for Clare College, and he earned his master's of, of art from Cambridge and, and became a regent at the university. Uh, he was ordained a Catholic priest. And again, all of the Reformers started out inside the Catholic Church, and for the most part, they were ordained as priests. And so when they were converted, they had to throw off the, the, the false gospel of Catholicism as they embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he had an extraordinary talent and ability to stand in front of a group of people even before he was converted. Uh, he had uh, just abilities to be able to, to speak and articulate what needed to be said. And he was distinguished, so distinguished at Cambridge that whenever there was a, an official procession in which uh, the dignitaries would come marching into a large uh, sanctuary or auditorium, Hugh Latimer, as a student and a teaching fellow, was actually what was known as the cross-bearer, which meant you led the procession in. Uh, you held this, this pole that had a cross on top, and, and the, the, the other uh, important people would come in behind you. And so, Hugh Latimer was recognized on campus as an outstanding man, and when Henry VIII came to Cambridge. It was a very historic visit by, by the, the King of England. It was Hugh Latimer as a young man who led Henry VIII into uh, the, the assembly hall um, by carrying the cross. And so that's really the beginning of his life. He received uh, also a Bachelor of Divinity from Cambridge. We had multiple uh, degrees. So that's really the beginning of of Hugh Latimer, well-educated, brilliant mind, uh, religious but lost. A second, a converted believer. In 1524, uh, Hugh Latimer was converted, and it is a most interesting uh, conversion testimony. Um, Hugh Latimer was so opposed to the Reformation that was already taking place in, in Europe, that he wrote his dissertation against the Reformers. He wrote his dissertation against Philip Melanchthon's understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Philip Melanchthon was a professor at the University of Wittenberg, uh, a colleague of uh, Martin Luther, and was a brilliant uh, New Testament scholar in his own right. And so, Hugh Latimer took on uh, Philip Melanchthon in his dissertation. He was so adamant against uh, the message and the truth of the Reformation, and in that day and time, you would give your dissertation publicly at, at graduation, and you really wouldn't know if you had graduated or not uh, until the end of the service if the faculty approved your dissertation which would also be given in Latin, by the way. Uh, th these were brilliant men. And there happened to be a man listening that day named Thomas Bilding. Thomas Bilding. He had just been converted by the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luther's writings have made their way to Cambridge. And Thomas Bilding, who himself would become a martyr, heard Hugh Latimer give this, uh, this empty uh, rebuke of the Protestant gospel, which is just really the gospel of the Bible. And so Bill and he asked if he could speak to him. And Hugh Latimer said, well, sure. He was just so self-assured and self-cocked. And so Bill and he gave him his testimony and it is, it is a remarkable thing. This is like Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. What God can do in 10 minutes, what it might take otherwise uh, three years to happen, 
God immediately opened the heart like He opened the heart of Lydia when Paul was in uh, Philippi. God opened the heart of, of Hugh Latimer, and he was suddenly, instantly, dramatically converted. He had no real answer to what Thomas Bildney had said. Now, think about this. He's just done his dissertation and has studied for a couple of years. And in a moment, Thomas Bildney, it's like a light out of heaven just came shining into his darkened heart. And he was converted. He was born again. And Latimer said, Master Bildney was the instrument whereby God called me to knowledge, for I thank him next to God for the knowledge that I have in the Word of God. For I was an as obstinate a papist as anyone was in England, insomuch that I should be made bachelor divinity. My whole ordination went against Philip Melanchthon. Bilney heard me at that time and perceived that I was zealous without knowledge. And he came to me afterward in my study and desired me, for God's sake, to hear his confession. I did so. By his confession, I learned more than before in many years. The power of a testimony, the power of a confession. And let me just say to you, you and I never know how God will use our speaking to someone else about the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if they are hardened in their unbelief, even if they have deeply held convictions about that which is a false gospel, God can turn the heart. God can turn on the lights. God can work powerfully in a moment in time, and that's what God did in the life of Hugh Latimer, and that's how God can use you and me as we speak to others. And Bilney took the, the initiative to say, could I have a moment of your time? I would like to tell you about what God's done in my life. The power of a testimony, and describing his lost condition earlier, Latimer said, it was too long to tell you what blindness I have been in and how long uh, it was before I could forsake such folly. God has delivered me. So that's, that's, that's Hugh Latimer. So he's converted, and he immediately joins a small group Bible study that may be the most famous Bible study in the history of the church. It's a small group of people meeting at the White Horse Inn. I told you about that last night. And I, I was just where it once was uh, two months ago and stood there, and there's a plaque at the White Horse Inn, and it lists the people who were there. This was a Bible study, small group Bible study, the likes of which I don't think the church has ever seen. In this sm one small group Bible study was... Nicholas Ridley, the greatest theologian of the English Reformation, Miles Coverdale, who completed Tyndale's Old Testament, as you recall from last night, Ezra to Malachi, Thomas Cranmer, who became the archbishop and became the, really the architect of the organization for the English Reformation, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into the English language, Hugh Latimer, who became the greatest preacher of the English Reformation, as well as Robert Barnes and, and Thomas uh, Bilney. And out of this small group Bible study, there were either seven or eight martyrs. What an amazing providence. And their hearts were knit together, and their hearts were knit to the truth. And as iron sharpens iron, so does one man an, uh, another. And the truth was contagious, and they were feeding off each other as they were gaining insight into the Scripture, and as they were affecting one another, it was out of this little small group Bible study that the nation of England uh, pivoted. What a remarkable thing. Now, this leads third to he was a powerful preacher. And beginning in 1524, now remember, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses, 1519, uh, 1517, Luther's converted, 1519, uh, 
Uh, uh, William Tyndale begins to translate the Bible into the English language, 1524. So this very same year here in Cambridge, immediately he begins to preach. I I like that. He he hit the ground running. As soon as he was converted, he he began to herald and to proclaim uh, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and he wasn't just an, an academic lecturer. He was a zealous preacher with a fire in his bones, and the pulpits at Cambridge began to open up for him. He was one of the most striking preachers already of his day. He was sound in doctrine, and many there at Cambridge would trace their conversion to being under the preaching of Hugh Latimer even while he is a young man there. Well, of course, that really stirred the pot. And that created opposition against him because he is so public and so outspoken, and the Catholic friars and the doctors of divinity at at Cambridge uh, began to mount uh, an opposition against him. And one man, a bishop, called him, mandated that he preach against Martin Luther because he knew that he was being sympathetic to Luther's doctrine. And... And, and, and Latimer just wisely was evasive and said, why, we're not permitted to read Luther on campus. <laughs> well, the White Horse Inn was actually across the street from campus. So he said, we're not allowed to read uh, Luther on campus, uh, so I wouldn't be able to answer or I wouldn't be able to preach a sermon uh, uh, against him. Well, this you know, outraged the the Catholic authorities, and they denied him access to the pulpits there in Cambridge, and he was actually sent to London to be examined by the church leadership regarding his doctrine. And, And that speaks to really what a powerful force he was as he stood to preach the Word of God. And I don't think there's any more powerful force in the entire world than a Spirit filled Bible preacher. And Latimer is a force to be reckoned with, so he is summoned to London, Uh, he is examined, Uh, he is found to be guilty of of heresy against the Catholic Church, and in a strange providence, Henry VIII uh, was seeking a divorce to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and, and, and Latimer basically agreed with it. And Henry VIII so appreciated that, that Henry VIII threw his weight and had his life spared. And what a strange thing it is that even an unbelieving king like Henry VIII can be used by God to carry out God's eternal purposes. God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line with it. And God can take a crooked man and use him for His own glory. What he meant for evil, God means for good. So, Hugh, life, uh, Hugh Latimer, has, uh, uh, he, he has a new lease on life. And so this leads now to number four, royal chaplain. <laughs> Hugh Latimer is named to be a royal chaplain. This, is, this, this elevates him nationally. There would be around the king something like six preachers that would be dispatched by the king to go to the various cities and and churches of the land to preach. They were the best of the best of the best. John Knox was a royal chaplain um, under uh, Edward VI. And so here is Hugh Latimer, and he now has access to the king because his preaching gifts have, have distinguished him. And he has access to the king in the inner circle, and he is made vicar of West Kington Church. Uh, And the leaders of the Catholic Church, this caused them to gnash their teeth all the more, and they uh, relaunched their efforts to prevent Hugh Latimer from, from preaching. He is summoned again to London. He is examined by a group of, of bishops uh, over a period of six weeks. And it was just the protective hand of God upon Hugh Latimer 
that kept him alive through all of this. And Henry VIII put a stop to this persecution and instead had Hugh Latimer uh, appointed Bishop of Worcester. So the, 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 the king, this reprobate king, is being used by God as God's own servant to elevate the greatest Reformed preacher in the entire nation. Well, this leads now to number five, church reformer. And in this position of influence as Bishop of Worcester, this means that Hugh Latimer now has the uh, ability to appoint the preachers in the various churches and to dictate how they will worship. And Hugh Latimer is uh, appointed by Cranmer to, to preach before other preachers, and Hugh Latimer is used by God to, to call uh, even Catholic priests in this Church of England back to the Bible. And, and so he charges them to read their Bibles daily and to preach from the, from the Bible, and, and Latimer is being used in a, in a great way. That leads us now to bold witness, 1539. And in 1539, Henry VIII, who is, who, who, who is an unbeliever, he, he, he moves from one extreme to another extreme. Here he has protected Hugh Latimer. Now he issues what is known as the Act of Six Articles. Uh, it was all against the Protestants and against the Reformers. And it was an edict that all worship must be uh, with mass, uh, transubstantiation, and he said now that the communion cup will be withheld from the common people and only given to the laity. Uh, many other things, he requires that priests uh, not marry, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so this leads now to Hugh Latimer, an imprisoned criminal, because the tide, the political tide has quickly changed, and everything that Hugh Latimer is for, now Henry VIII is against, and everything he's against, Henry VIII is for, and he is arrested. He is kept in house arrest. Are you ready for this? For the next eight years. He's like a lion in a cage. Uh, this, this preacher with a fire in his bones uh, is kept in confinement in a house for, for eight years. And this is a, a devastating loss for the sake of the Reformation, but God always has His perfect timing when God brings His man to the forefront. And as Latimer is, is opposed... Uh, so, so readily. They, they said to him, you're the only person who believes what you believe. You ever had someone say that to you in your family or among your friends? You're the only person who believes this. Are, are we all wrong and you're the only person that's right? That's what they were saying to Hugh Latimer to try to intimidate him to back off of his position. And so he is then moved to the Tower of London. If you've ever been to London, you know where the Tower of London is, and that's where the most notorious uh, criminals were held captive, where the crown jewels are. It's a locked-down uh, place, and Hugh Latimer is put into the Tower of London, and he is waiting every day for the knock at the door to be led to his death. Well... In the providence of God, Henry VIII died. Now, just think about this. God is the one who raises kings, and God is the one who removes kings. And all of our days are written in God's book when as yet there's not one of them. And God has foreordained the day of our birth. And God has already foreordained the day of your death, and you will not live one day beyond. You will not live one day less than. 
And there is an acceptance that we have as believers in the sovereignty of God that when it is our time, it is our time, and that is the best time because that is the time that God has foreordained that we would leave this world. And so in the the providence of history, and by the way, history is His story. In the providence of history, God has Henry VIII dead, and it spares the life of Hugh Latimer, and now the boy King Edward VI comes to the throne, and he is a determined Protestant, and one of his first steps is to install uh, Hugh Latimer again as a royal chaplain. So he literally goes from the prison to the palace under the sovereignty of God, and rather than dying, he is released to, to preach, and Edward VI uh, issues the, the commission to Latimer to go throughout England and to preach the Word of God, to spread the Reformed faith of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Edward VI calls uh, John Knox from northern England to come and be one of the royal chaplains as well. It's an all-star lineup of royal chaplains that, that the king now has at his fingertips and for the next six years, while Henry, excuse me, while Edward VI is on the throne, uh, Latimer is used in a very public way to spread the gospel of truth. What an extraordinary uh, influence he exerted. And he preached one of the most famous sermons to ever be preached in the English Reformation, in fact, it was the most famous sermon in the entire English Reformation. The date is January the 1st, 1548. And Latimer preached not only his most famous sermon, but the most famous sermon of the English Reformation. It's a sermon entitled, Sermon of the Plow. And it was a blistering sermon against the priests in the Church of England who had neglected their calling to preach the Word of God. And so Hugh Latimer said, I liken preaching to a plowman's labor and a preacher to a plowman. For as the plowman first sets forth his plow, and then tills his land and breaks it in furrows and sometimes ridges it up again, so the preacher has many diverse offices to do. Now, casting down his listeners with the law, now ridging them up again with the gospel. In other words, breaking them down with the law, building them up with grace and the gospel, wetting them by telling them their faults, and clotting them by breaking their stony hearts. By this much, I dare say that since lording and loitering, and loitering means, you know, just being slothful, being lazy, that since lording, and by that meaning to dominate people, and loitering meaning to be lazy in your duties towards the people, But this much I dare say, that since lording and loitering has come up, meaning very prevalent in the ministry, preaching has come down, contrary to the apostles' time. So in other words, the lazier the preacher, the less the preaching. The more the preacher just wants to boss everybody around, the less he fulfills his duty to let God direct the people through His Word. So, Latimer goes on to say, the apostles preached and lorded not, but now the priests lord and preach not. For they are lords, for they that are lords will go not to plow. It is no desirable office for them it is not preferable for their estate. Thus came up lording loiterers. It's kind of hard to say. Thus came up lording loiterers, crept in with un.
preaching preachers. What a contradiction in terms. That's like a barber who won't cut hair. That's like a taxi driver who doesn't drive a car. An unpreaching preacher? But that's what had filled the pulpits in, in England at this time, and all that they were doing was getting up and giving a little tiny little homily uh, in which they would take something from a Greek philosopher or Aesop's fables or their own personal experience or one of the, the poets and, and give a little devotional thought. Uh, they would never take the Bible and open up the Word of God and preach and proclaim the, the depths of the truths of the written Scripture. So they had unpreaching preachers who were, loitering, who were lording loiterers. You try to say that. <laughs> so, and so they have long continued. For ever since the preachers were made lords, and by that he meant elevated to high positions in society and in the nation and sitting with the king, etc., and nobles, ever since the preachers were made lords and nobles, the plow stands still. They're not out in the field. They're not out in God's vineyard. They're not doing God's work. They're not plowing up the soil in people's hearts with the law. They're not sowing the seed of the gospel into their hearts. He says, there is no work done. The people starve because the, the fields are not yielding any crop. The people starve. The preachers hawk, meaning they shoot for game and try to shoot hawks. Uh, they hunt. They card, meaning they sit around in the tavern and they play cards. Uh, they die, meaning throw dice, so that plowing is set aside. And so with this strong rebuke, Latimer charged the, the, the preachers and the priests of England with, Lord, quote, lording over the people, which is increased, and preaching to the people is decreased. And all this was a setup now for the hammer blow of the sermon. And so now Latimer brings this blistering sermon to a conclusion, and he says this, I know who is the hardest worker in all of England. I know who's out there in the field. I know who's out there after men and women. I know who never takes a day off. I know who's never on vacation. I know who is never out of the church. He's referring to the devil himself, is the busiest preacher in all of England. And so Latimer says, and now I would ask a strange question. Who is the most diligent bishop and preacher in all of England that passes all the rest in doing his office? I can tell you, for I know who he is, I know him very well, that now I think I see you list, uh, listening and hearkening that I should name him. There is one who passes all the others and is the most diligent preacher in all of England. And will you know who he is? I will tell you. It is the devil. He is the most diligent preacher of all others. He is never out of his diocese. He is never from his cure. You will never find him unoccupied. He is ever in his parish. He keeps residence at all times. You will never find him out of the parish and out of the way. Call for him when you will, and he will ever be at home. He is the most diligent preacher in all the realm. He is ever at his plow. No uh, loitering can hinder him. He is ever applying his business, and you will never find him idle, I warrant you." Close quote. Well, that described, in a nutshell, the state of the church. That was a State of the Union address. That was a state of the, of the church 
And Latimer put his finger exactly on the live nerve of what was wrong in the church, that there were not men of God taking the Word of God and the power of God and lifting up the Son of God and offering the grace of God for the salvation of sinners. And that's exactly what's wrong today as well. Nothing has changed. How rare it is to find a church like this church where a man will stand in the pulpit for almost 50 years and preach verse by verse through the entire New Testament and then circle back again and start all over. How rare this is. And we have in churches today men who are loitering and who are lording, but they are not fulfilling the primary purpose for which God has called them into the ministry, which is to exposit the Word of God and to plow up the soil of hearts and to cast the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what was taking place in Latimer's day. Well, this leads to number nine, arrested criminal. In 1553, that is the year that Edward VI died, and to the throne comes none other than Mary Tudor, the staunch Catholic, and as she assumes the throne of England, she completely changes the religious landscape of the day, and England goes from having a Protestant king with Protestant royal chaplains and Protestant-friendly legislation now suddenly turned around, and it is staunchly Catholic. And Hugh Latimer has a target on his head. He was preaching in a church. Word came to him before the service began that Mary Tudor has sent her guards to come have you arrested. You must flee for your life now, and they will not find you. And Hugh Latimer said this to this person. He said, I will stay. I will preach the Word of God, and if he wants to arrest me, they can take me to London, and I'll preach there in London to the officials and to the guards that are there. And so they came, and while Hugh Latimer was preaching, They arrested him. He refused to flee. And when they arrested Latimer, he said to the guard, my friend, you are a welcome messenger to me. And be it known unto you and to all the world that I go willingly to London at this present, being called by by my prince, referring to Jesus, to render a, a reckoning of my doctrine as ever I went to any place in the world. In other words, I will go to London and I will tell the truth of what I believe as willingly as I have gone to any church. And I do not doubt but that God, as He has made me worthy to preach His Word to two excellent princes, and He's referring to Henry VIII and Edward VI, so He will enable me to bear witness the same unto the third who is Mary." What an extraordinary thing. I mean, Hugh Latimer has had direct access to preach to Henry VIII and to preach to Edward VI, and he says, now I am ready to go and preach to my third monarch, and she will know exactly what I believe. And so as they take him to London, they bring him through Smithfield, which is where they have already put to death John Rogers, and Latimer says, Smithfield has long groaned for me. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London for for his heresy, and he is locked up in the same cell with Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Bradford. (laughs) It's almost like the small group Bible study is back together again. (laughs) And they're having a prison ministry. And uh, they, they, the, the, the prison was so overcrowded that they had to put all four of the reformers together into one prison cell. And so they studied the Word of God together. Of course they studied the Word of God together. And they looked to find, is there any teaching in the Bible for the Mass? Is there even one verse? 
And they came to the conclusion again as a result of their diligent study that there is not one jot or one tittle in the entire Bible that would teach such a, a blasphemous truth, a blasphemous lie as the Mass. And so they spend their time in prayer. Hugh Latimer is becoming an old man. That the others have to help him up because his knees are, are becoming so, so weak. And in the year 1555, number 10, prosecuted heretic. The time has now come for them to be officially prosecuted, and Mary has them transferred from London to Oxford for two reasons. One, to get them as far away from the coast as possible to put them into the middle of the landmass so that there's no possibility for them to escape to Europe. And also because at Oxford are the doctors of divinity, and they will be used to cross-examine uh, Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer. And so they are transferred to, to, to Oxford, and as they come to Oxford, they now divide them up so that they cannot be together and draw courage from one another, and they are put into different, uh, different holding places. The trial will take place at St. Mary's Church. It begins on April the 14th, 1554, and the meeting are begun by taking Mass, and they force Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer to, to participate in the Mass and to observe the Mass. It is accompanied by a huge choir from Christ Church, and it is in, in, intended to demoralize them. Uh, there is an imposing procession then that comes into the church, and there is a cross-bearer who leads the procession, the very uh, position that Hugh Latimer himself had once held, and this was followed by uh, more choir singers and regents and doctors of law and doctors of divinity and uh, official guards who were known as beetles and chief dignitaries, and then Oxford students, the church is jam-packed. There are also 33 commissioners uh, that were sent to oversee the examinations, and Thomas Cranmer is brought in first, followed by Ridley, followed last by Latimer, and Latimer has read to him pro-Catholic articles, and he is called upon to affirm the Catholic articles and to deny the Reformed truth, which is in reality biblical truth, and Hugh Latimer refuses to do so and says he repudiates the Catholic doctrine, and so they dismiss, they return four days later, Latimer is called in again, uh, the New Testament is read many times uh, to him. He says that he has never yet seen nor heard of the Mass in the Bible anywhere whatsoever, and the lead prosecutor, a man named Weston, said to him that he would cause Latimer to retract his words, and Latimer said, that, sir, you will never do. They dismiss. Latimer is brought back four days later, and they are intentionally dragging this out so that they can try to wear him down over an extended period of time and continue to hammer him with these examinations. And so he is asked again to reply to the articles, and he says, I pray you, good master prosecutor, do not extract that of me which is not in me, the Roman church has begotten the error of transubstantiation. And in giving his defense, Latimer refused to, to be drawn in to lengthy conversations on the church fathers. And they were trying to, to, to pull him down different rabbit trails, 
And Latimer stayed on message, and he would only address chapter and verse in the Bible. He was a Bible man. He was like what Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, why the man is a walking Bible. Prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline, whatever that is. <laughs> well, Latimer is a walking Bible. And he says in response to one trying to draw him into uh, addressing the church fathers, he says, I am of their faith when they say well what the Scripture says. And when they bring the Scriptures for them, I am of their faith. In other words, I only agree with them when they agree with Scripture. That's all. And so Weston confronted Latimer. He said, your stubbornness will do you no good when a faggot is in your beard. A faggot is like a burning stick that ignites uh, the, 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 the kindling around the, the, the stake. When you have the fire burning in your, in your beard, then you will back down from your stubbornness. And we will see how little cause you have to be stubborn for your for your learning is in the offer's hand. The queen's grace is merciful if you will turn to her. And so a pardon is offered to Latimer from the queen if he will repent of his beliefs and if he will embrace the mass, he may be pardoned. And Latimer responded, you will have no hope in me to turn. I pray that the queen will repent and turn. Weston says, he denies all truth, and he denies all the fathers, and he denies all that the church has taught. So this leads to number, number 11, condemned offender. These three reformers, Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, are brought back to St. Mary's church to hear the formal condemnation pronounced against them. The prosecutor began by pronouncing that they were no longer members of the church, and they are condemned as heretics. And, and this disputation now concluded the next morning. So they just continue to drag it out. They come back the next morning after the condemnation has been read, and, and everyone who is in this jam-packed church, St. Mary's Church, they all take mass together. And the three reformers are, are forced to watch all of this. Again, the general procession with all of its pomp and all of its circumstance uh, comes marching back in, and all of this is to be a, a show of strength as hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds are here in this church, and there are only these three. They are having to stand against the world, and they are having to be like Athanasius, contramundum against the world. And so, as they are there, they are dismissed again, they are brought back, and in September 1555, September the 30th, was the official trial began. At the Divinity School at the University of Oxford, Ridley was tried first, Latimer waited outside, and Fox's Book of Martyrs records, and John Fox actually researched this like Luke researched to write the Gospel of Luke and, and the Book of Acts. He talks to eyewitnesses. He reads the court reports. Uh, he talks to people who were there in person. Uh, he talks to different people who have talked to Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer. Uh, there are family members there there. And he pieces together, John Fox pieces together these accounts with remarkable accuracy. And so John, uh, John Fox records, when Master Latimer bowed his knee down to the ground, holding his hat in his hand, having a handkerchief on his head, and upon it a nightcap uh, or two, and a great cap such as a, a townsman wore, with, with two broad flaps to button under the, the chin, wearing an old uh, frieze, which would be like a, a gown, um, girded his body 
with a leather girdle. He has his New Testament in hand, and he has his spectacles dangling around his neck. The Bishop of Lincoln warned Latimer to repent and to return to the church he, he, he has forsaken. And Fox records, therefore, Master Latimer, for God's... Oh, he, they said to him, Master Latimer, for God's love, consider your estate. Remember, you are a learned man. You have taken degrees in the school. You have borne the office of a bishop. Remember, you are now an old man. Spare your body. Accelerate not your death. And remember your soul's breath. Latimer responded as he addressed the matter of the Mass, and all of this is over the Mass. Understand this. Latimer said, the bread is still bread. In other words, it has not become the body of Christ. The bread is still bread, and the wine is still wine. For the change is not in the nature, but in the dignity, meaning what it represents. Christ made one perfect sacrifice for the whole world, neither can any man offer Him again. Neither is there any propitiation for our sins except in the cross. The bishop of, of Lincoln determined that Latimer would be given the night to think it through again. I mean, they're just trying to wear him down, and Latimer says, don't bother to give me another night. Truly, my Lord, for, I, for my part, I require no respite, for I am at a point you shall give me respite in vain. Therefore, I pray you, let me not trouble you tomorrow." In other words, let's get it on. Burn me. I am not changing my position. My convictions are firm. So they force him to take one more night. He's brought back the next day. Ridley is brought back the next day. Ridley was brought in first, and the final verdict of condemnation was read, and he was found guilty of heresy and would face execution. The carpet on which Ridley was standing was, was removed from him, and it signified that your ordination as a, as a priest in the Catholic Church is now being removed from you. He could be only happy that they were removing his Catholic ordination. Latimer was then addressed by the Bishop of Lincoln and urged him to recant the heresies of denying the real presence of the body and the blood in the sacrament. They cannot get off this religious superstition, this blasphemous lie that the bread becomes the body of Christ and that the, blood, uh, that the wine becomes the blood of Christ. Latimer interrupted the Bishop of of London, and denied that the church of Rome is the true Catholic church. Further, he affirmed that once and for all time, Jesus Christ made one perfect sacrifice, and it is a sacrifice that will never be offered again. It was the once and for all time perfect atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The blood is not continuing to be shed. The body is not continuing to be given. Latimer said, Christ made one sacrifice for the sins of the world, and that a perfect sacrifice, neither needs there to be any other, neither can there be any other sacrifice. The Bishop of London then read the final condemnation and said to the mayor of Oxford, he is now your prisoner. Latimer was condemned as a heretic and sentenced to die by being burned at the stake. After the sentence was read, Latimer added, this is a great statement, I thank God most heartily that He has prolonged my life to this end. In other words, I am thankful that God has kept me alive just so I could die this way. 
giving witness and testimony of my Savior and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is not whimpering his way to the stake. He is praising God that he has been given this platform from which he can give testimony to the perfect death of Christ for sinners. The prosecutor denounced Latimer, saying, if you go to heaven in the faith, I will never come there. No true words have been spoken. This leads now to number 12, valiant martyr. On the morning of October 16th, 1555, the great day had arrived. A strong stake was driven into the ground on the outskirts of town, and by the Queen's order, Lord Williams, with guards, ensured that there would not be chaos or, or, or a mob scene that would in any way prevent this execution from coming to pass. The two prisoners, Ridley and Latimer, were brought to the execution site by the mayor of, of Oxford with his bailiffs, respectively. Ridley approached the martyr stake first, walking between the mayor and the alderman. Then came Latimer, second, dressed in poor man's clothing, uh, uh, a worn gown, button cap with a handkerchief on his head, and a long shroud over his stocking hose. When Ridley saw Latimer approaching behind him, he said, are you there? Latimer replied, I am. I'm following you as fast as I can. Ridley arrived at the stake first. As Latimer came in behind, Ridley ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. The two went down to their knees. They prayed fervently that God would be glorified in their death. They prayed that God would give the greater grace that they needed to die in such a way that they would give honor to their Lord. The Catholic Church then brought forth a, a priest to preach to them. The priest preached, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It is to mock them and to, to taunt them and to scorn them and to ridicule them that your dying and being burned is, it's all in vain. Latimer and Ridley were tied to the stake. They lifted up their hands and eyes to heaven and called upon the Lord. Latimer had his attendant pull off his hose, meaning his sock, stockings, and then have his outer garments removed. The blacksmith fastened a chain of iron around their waists, binding them back to back to the same stake. A bag of gunpowder was hung around both of their necks. The martyr's fire was ignited, and the burning began to rise up their feet. Latimer then called out to Ridley with some of the most famous words that have ever been uttered in all of church history. Latimer, the preacher, calls out to Ridley, the, the theologian, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. Play the man. Man up for the moment and for the hour, and there will be lit here a fire that will never be extinguished. And with that, Latimer cried out, O oh, Father of heaven, receive my spirit. And Latimer rubbed his face with his hands, though frail and weak with age. He bathed his body with the fire, and the flames claimed his life, and he collapsed at the base of the stake as he was blown up. Marcus Lone describes the moment and said, in dying, 
Latimer lit the candle whose flame was to make his death his glory. And that is how Hugh Latimer, the greatest Bible preacher of the English Reformation, met his end in this life. Thankful that God had kept him alive these many years, that his greatest moment could come at the end of his life, where he publicly could give testimony to the gospel and to the grace of God, and that he could play the man in the most adverse of circumstances, in the most difficult of times. This calls out to us over the, over, the, over the centuries. It calls out to you and to me today that we too must play the man. We must play the woman. We must be men of God and women of God. And whatever test to which we will be put, we must see it as our opportunity, our platform by which we may bring glory to God by holding fast to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for Ridley and for Latimer, for them to die was gain as they went immediately into the presence of the one whom they preached and the one who had died for them. Christ had died for them, now they have the privilege of dying for Christ. And they wore it as a badge of honor, and they saw it as a great opportunity. So must we as well. Whatever opposition we will face, whatever persecution we will face, whatever family members want to ostracize us, whatever friends leave us out of their circles of companionship, Whatever job promotion is withheld from us, whatever raise is not given to us because we are known to be believers, we must wear it as a badge of honor that we are identified with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very term Christian means a little Christ. It's a diminutive form of the word Christ, a little Christ. And it was first used in Acts 11 to describe the early disciples and believers as a term of mockery, belittling the believers. Oh, you're one of those little Christs, for He suffered and died, and so I guess you're a loser like He is. And those early believers so loved being identified with their crucified Savior that what the world meant to mock them with they embraced and took that label to themselves, and from that moment forward, we have been identified as Christians, little Christ, following Christ, loving Christ, obeying Christ, serving Christ, being used by Christ, and whatever it will cost, no sacrifice is too great even if it requires the giving of our life. No sacrifice is too great for anyone in this room to make in comparison to the great sacrifice that He has made for us upon Calvary's cross. And as I conclude this session, I, I just have to say this again, knowing that to have this many people all together in one room that there's no way that we're all believers, that there's no way that we're all Christians. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not born again, if you've not yet fully committed your life to Christ, I, I want you to know that it was in the death of Christ that God has dealt with our sins, that God the Father took the sins of all those who would believe in Him and transferred them to Jesus, and Jesus bore the sins of His people upon the cross. And He shed His blood, and in that vicarious substitutionary death in the place of sinners, Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous anger of God toward us. And if you're outside of Christ tonight, I want you to know that God is angry with you, and the wrath of God is upon you. 
And God will judge you one day, and He will damn your soul if you do not run to Christ for salvation. You are under the judgment of God. But in the cross, Jesus placated, He propitiated the wrath of God towards all those who will believe in Him. And so there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And with the death of Christ upon the cross, Jesus has reconciled now holy God and sinful man and has brought the two together through the blood of the cross. And there is no way for you to be accepted by holy God in heaven except through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and through your faith in Him. And Jesus, by the shedding of His blood, He purchased and bought and redeemed the salvation of His people. And He has bought us out of the slave market of sin. Sin has been our slave, has been our master. We have been the slave of sin. But through the cross, Jesus has now set us free. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And we are now slaves of Christ and servants of Christ, and we now belong to Christ. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I must say this as we bring this session to a close. Call upon the Lord. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've never committed your life to Christ, do so this moment. Do so today. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Do not procrastinate any longer. Cross the line. Enter through the narrow gate. Come all the way to faith in Christ. Deny yourself. Embrace Christ. Turn your back to the world. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And you will be radically and dramatically saved from the wrath of God. You will be a new creature in Christ, and the old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. If you've never called upon the name of Christ, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between you and God, and it is Jesus Christ. And you must come to Christ, and He will then present you to the Father, faultless, with perfect acceptance before His throne of grace. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. We're going to have a short break, and then we're going to come back. It's the same pie. I'm just slicing it up a little bit, a little bit different. When we come back, I've got another martyr I want you to know. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this look at Hugh Latimer, thank you for the boldness and the courage of his faith. I pray that it would inspire great commitment on our part as well as we see an older brother in the Lord face even the fires of martyrdom with great determination and resolve. Give us such courage as well as we live our daily lives here where you have placed us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.